Show. And welcome to the Donald Jeffries Show. This is Donald Jeffries. Very special guest today. He's also a, a good friend. Uh, I've been so blessed to meet so many great, not me, because I haven't met him in person like I haven't met most of my close friends now, <clears throat> but I consider him a friend. And uh, to me, in my mind, he's uh, maybe the most underrated JFK assassination researcher, certainly on the medical evidence. He absolutely is. He should be. He's the go to guy at this point for that. William Law has been researching the JFK assassination for a long time. He's produced some great work. His most famous work is In the Eye of History, uh, which again goes into medical evidence, but he also worked with Jim Jenkins. And I'm, I'm going to let him tell the titles of all his other works. We're also going to discuss his work as a research into the RFK assassination and the death of Marilyn Rose. So just very always happy to talk with you, William. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Don. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So give give out this. Uh, we have in the eye of history, obviously. But what are the other? But you wrote one with Jim Jenkins, and you wrote one. God, I'm uh, one of the other guards. I'm I'm sorry, I, I'm black. I wrote one. I wrote one for um, Hugh Clark, who was yes one of the honor guard that took Kennedy's casket to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital that night, and uh, to the Arlington National Cemetery for burial, and. Uh, it's called Betrayal. And uh, the other one I wrote was one with one of the autopsy technicians, uh, co-wrote with Jim Jenkins, uh, called At the Cold Shoulder of History, about his experiences in the morgue that night. Uh, right, so, all pretty exciting stuff for me to do. Yeah, they all kind of uh, revolve around the theme of the autopsy, thus my... Uh... <clears throat> my belief that you are the go-to guy in the medical evidence, but how, how did you get started uh, on this, William? I, I don't think you go back as far as I do, you know, when I was a teenager working with Mark Lane's group in the, in the mid-70s, but I know you've been doing this for a while. What, what got you interested? I assume you like JFK, but what, what got you started down these uh, wayward paths? Well, like many, um, this is like 19, I, somewhere around 1988, 89, um, I stumbled across David Lifton's book, Best Evidence. And uh, I happened to pick it up at, at a local bookstore. And up until that time, you know, I bought the, the theme that Oswald had shot JFK. You know, it was just, it was carved in stone, as it's been said. I never really, you know, did much with it other than watch the occasional documentary or, you know, read some articles or whatever. And I can remember thinking as a teenager, I was probably 
14 or so. And I, I remember thinking, you know, the guys that, you know, did the autopsy will be able to tell us. And someday they'll talk. Well, I didn't know what had been done until I picked up this book. And I, you open it up, and in the middle of this, it was the old Carolyn Graff edition. And in the middle of this thing were, were autopsy photographs showing President Kennedy laid out on the morgue table and other things with his head shot. And, and, you know, I thought, even to my untrained eyes at that point, I thought, something's not right with this. Now, keep in mind, this was me when I didn't know anything about, you know, the, really the medical evidence. I didn't know anything about the autopsy pictures or the or the controversy around them. I just saw this thing in the book and thought, eh, it's not something quite right. So I took this book home and, and I read it. And I, I read it in non-belief. It was, it was I, I couldn't get my head around the, the theory. And for those that don't know, the book deals with uh, the main underpinnings of the book have to do with the autopsy technicians that had their hands on JFK's body and what they saw uh, as far as the wounds, uh, Dallas versus Bethesda. Uh, and this intrigued me so much that over the next several years, I, I read best evidence over and over, but I also uh, started reading everything I could. Um, Mark Lane's work was was one of the first things I read. And I just kept delving into these different books until I reached a point where I thought, you know, the information's becoming repetitive. There's a lot of controversy I need. Now, I I don't normally do anything like this, but I was driven to such a point that I actually started calling people uh, and asking their opinions, witnesses that had been in Dealey Plaza. Um, I think one of the first people I called was Bill Newman, and he was kind enough to uh, to tell me of his experiences over the phone. And then later, when I went to uh, I went to Dallas, I got to meet him, and he was kind enough to have me in his office at Mesquite, in Mesquite, Texas, and uh, just sat around uh, with a couple of uh, people that I had just met, uh, Ian Griggs and Mark Rowe. I don't know if you familiar with them but th now this was years and years Ian ago Gray, Ian Griggs yeah he just died a couple of years ago right the, the yeah, guy from the U UK yeah. yeah he was a great guy and so was Mark and I kind of horned into some conversation these guys were having and, and and I was just standing around it was at a conference and I just stood there and then started talking to them and we got into a conversation I said well listen I have to go I've got to meet with Bill Newman so I started walking off and he Ian came forward and said, now, William, how the hell did you manage that? And I said, well, I asked him. So Ian said, well, would you would you mind if we came along? And I said, well, I don't care. Let me give him a call and see if, if that's all right. So we, I did that. Bill said, be fine. Uh, we uh, met him at his office in Mesquite, um, and we just had a good old talk. He allowed me to turn the film camera on, and we recorded the whole thing, and, and it was really an exciting thing for me, and that just started me off. So sure. uh, I, I think that was in, like, 96, I, and I 97, I, can't, I think that was in October. I came back for the conference that was being held. It was a Lancer conference, and uh, it was being uh, uh, headed by George Michael Ivica, and uh, they were, I was having lunch with, at a table, and 
George Michael happened to be sitting there, and I said, you know, if you really want to know what's going on, you've got to talk to the people in the autopsy because that's where the real evidence is. You know, I didn't, you know, I'd never spoken from the stage. You know, I was just on fire about the medical evidence because I thought that's where the real answers could be found. You no, I, I, I have to ask you real quick. You were talking to, to yep. Ivica. Was his, uh, was the estimable Charles Drago there? But another one of these people that rashly hates me, by the way. Was he, was he there? Because I know he was very uh, close to him. He was close to him, and, and I got to know Charles later. I don't – I may have met him there, but I don't remember him being there. Okay. Um, so. You have to remember this was a number of years ago, but I did get – I did uh, get uh, to talk and get to know Charles over the years. He's always been nice to me. Good, but, good for you. you know, People like you better than me, I guess, William. <laughs> I, I have that winning personality, and all you have to do is charm it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm too much of a lightning rod, I guess. I don't know. But I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But yeah, so, no, that's, that's, so you, yeah. that's fine. Um, and, and in saying this, uh, George Michael Ivica looks at me and says, well, would you like to go up on stage and talk about it? And, you know, the thought that came into my mind was, oh, hell no, I'm not going to do that. And I said, well, no, I don't think I'd like to do that, but I appreciate it. But uh, so that kind of stopped me from that. And, uh, Later on, he said, "Well, how would you like to, how would you like to put together a panel for um, the next conference next year? How would you like to put together a medical panel?" And now you have to understand that when this thing started out, I'd been reading, and you know, driving myself crazy about this stuff. I, I was obsessed with it. I was reading every kind of book I could get my hands on. Um, there was a, a mutual friend of ours that I'd gotten to know uh, via phone calls uh, named Mark Oaks, and he had done a yes, bunch of yes. uh, talks with uh, witnesses and got it all on film. I, I got to know him just by calling, I think it was Larry Howard's research center back in those days. And Mark happened to answer the phone. We got to be friendly that way, and he let me know he'd done a bunch of interviews, and so he sent me a bunch of his interviews. Um, so I thought, you know, I think at that point I was like, 38, 39, and I, I had kids, and I had a wife and, and mortgage, you know, and I thought people my age do not let themselves become obsessed with things like this, and I'm just going to stop doing it. I'm, I'm going to – that's when I found out about the conference, and I thought, well, I'll go to this conference, and I will talk to these like-minded people, and I will talk to some writers that are there. And I will find out and, you know, get everybody's consensus. I'll do this thing, and then I'm not going to have anything to do with it anymore. This is, this has got to stop. So I go to the conference, and then George Michael says, would you like to put together a panel? And I got, you know, I got to meet Bill Newman, and I got to meet, you know, writers that were there and other like-minded people. And instead of putting the fire out, it just started the fire all that much more. I mean, I was just, you know, yeah. I, truly, I was, I was, I became, sometimes when you're so involved with something and you yeah. can't let it go, the only thing that you can do is embrace it. Yes. So at that point, I just embraced it. And uh, some months later, I think it was like February, after the conference, I found myself sitting in the room, uh, the living room of uh, Gerald Custer, who took the, uh, 
who took the uh, x-rays of President Kennedy's body. And that's how uh, that started off. And so I went from talking to Gerald Custer to talking to Paul O'Connor to talking to Dennis David and to talking to Jim Jenkins and then uh, trying to get the uh, FBI agents who were told by nice. uh, by uh, J. Edgar Hoover to stay with the body and uh, take evidence back. And so far from stopping what I was doing, it just led me further down the path. Well, yeah, and you know, I don't know how I couldn't. I mean, I know when I when I first uh, got involved in it, you know, in uh, <clears throat> seven, probably seventy five, as a teenager, and uh, you know, gosh, I, I I just it was like uh, you know, it's like you just discovered smoking dope or something. I mean, you just you just you had to keep going, you know. I mean, it's like I couldn't stop, and uh, it was like an addiction. It was, and especially because you know when you obviously there's so many more books now, but even at that point, nineteen seventy five, a, a lot of books have been published. And, uh, you know, when you hadn't read any. So, you know, there's one after the other. Of course, as I'm reading, then more and more come out. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I just gobbled up everything I could on the subject and started go, knowing way too much minutia and everything, <clears throat> which as, as you're familiar with. But um, I, I, my, there's a couple questions for you already. Would, uh, one, what did you think of Penn Jones and his background? And have you ever been threatened? They want to know. Uh Pin Jones, never met him. I'm familiar with his writings. Uh, I I, get, I could give you a better answer to the question if if I would have known him personally, but he was he was either very ill at that point or probably passed by the time I I could have uh, met him. I didn't find out, you know, until later where I was delving into all the people that had uh, done work. I I admire what he's done. I admire a lot of the early researchers that that went out little housewives you know mm, yes yeah. shirley martin i, I talked shirley yeah. martin up all that shirley martin you know you, you get all these uh, mary farrell who er, most people seem to think was a cia agent or something i don't know but but a lot of people are suspicious of her shirley martin did yeoman's work early on and she gets no credit she's not remembered she didn't write a book Lost her daughter in an accident, and then right, just I guess right. go back. So, but I mean, I I love to shout out to her because she did she did a lot of the early essential work that a lot of the, the critics, you know, that that wrote books, uh, they used her. You know, she did the, the legwork for them. What was the book? I think it was in praise of future generations. Um, yes, John Kellen. John Kellen. Yeah. That book. If if anybody needs yes. a good primer. Get that yeah. book because it is fantastic. I cannot yes. keep enough praise on the work he's done. Um, gives you a good insight into these researchers from the beginning. That I mean, housewives that took their kids, stuck them in a station wagon, and went down and started talking to witnesses. This is like yes. almost right after the assassination happened. It's incredible. Absolutely fascinating. And you know, it, Kellen's Kellen's book was the first one that opened my eyes to uh, the the really the first conspiracy theorist in the JFK assassination was Marguerite Oswald, and he really opened my eyes to all the work she was doing at the ground level. She was questioning witnesses, and she was she was right there in the middle of it when uh, Vincent Salandri and Harold Feldman uh, went to Dallas. They were you know. Uh, they were guided by Mar Marguerite Oswald. They went and talked to Helen Markham and people like that. Right. Fascinating. I mean, I, yeah, she seemed a little nutty maybe, but 
you know, I think she's been treated unfairly. So in Hidden History 3 that I'm just finishing up now, uh, I'll have one of my typical defenses of somebody everyone else hates. And uh, <laughs> it's a big defense of Marguerite Oswald. I think that she uh, is very underrated. And she she really did a lot of uh, a lot of research. Like Mark Lane, you know, she, she fed him a lot of information early on before she uh, hired him as Oswald's attorney to represent his interests for the commission. So, but I'm sorry. I, well, I, I, well, I have to agree with that. I, I don't think you're on the wrong track at all. Um, Good. I mean, who's going to defend you and seek for the truth more than your mother? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And I'm not one of these people that go, well, Oswald was totally innocent, you know, right. uh, whatever innocence is. I mean, mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. And I'm not going to say I know one way or the other. I'm not going to, the one thing about me is, I have to really believe it. I, I don't want to get off onto these things of, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. Um, and if I don't know if it's true, I'm going to say I don't know if it's true or not. You know, is Oswald a hero? I know there's a lot of people out there that think he is. Right. Who am I to say that he's not? I don't right. I don't know. And we don't know. You're right. All you can do, and that's what I like. You stick to the facts, and uh, they're, they're mentioning uh, – uh, in the chat room, and of course, and I, I was going to ask you about Siebert and O'Neill because I think you're. You know, these, I'm sure most anybody listening to the show probably knows who they were, but they were they were the FBI agents at the autopsy, and they've been the source of so much over the years. I mean, you know, the, the surgery, namely in the top of the head area, whatever that that Lifton, you know, that's what that basically was, inspired him to write the best evidence. Lifton told me once that somebody had told him that he had ruined his, wasted his whole life because of the, the sentence in the uh, FD-302 report, there has been surgery in the head area, namely in the top of the skull, which is what opened up everything. Uh, you know, surgery of the head area. What surgery of the head area? <laughs> yeah. How do you make you a know? mistake like that? What, what is I it? Mean, the explanation is that, what are they saying, that there's? it wasn't technically surgery? I mean, I, I've seen these absurd, you know, rationales but i mean come on that's that's a word that you shouldn't be using to mean anything else well when i talked to o'neill uh let me do you want me to start at the beginning let me, let me tell you a little bit about the agent yes please i i i wanted so desperately to talk to these guys of course because you know of the fd302 report um which stands for federal document um where they put that sentence in there and and so I called up, this was like early on, this was like 2000 or 2001, and um, I called, uh, I believe it was uh, O'Neill. I know I was Cybert. I called Cybert up first and um, told him who I was. Now, I knew that, because of things I'd read, uh, I had a stack of papers where where uh, I had gotten that that said all these people were had, over the years had tried to get a hold of these two, and they would start off with something like, "I'm a college student and I'm doing a paper. Could you please uh, talk to me about this?" Would and and. Hello. William, something happened to William's connection. Chuck, is there? Is he still on? 
Yeah, I'm checking that now. It looks like we might have lost his cell. Um, hmm. See if we can bring him back in. Sorry about that, but cell yeah, phones like... cell phones are a problem. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it was going way. It was going strong there. Okay. Yeah, it was fine. Uh, sounded fine. Everything was good. Uh, let's see. Okay, try to bring. Live radio, people. Yeah, well, this, this, is... this is what happens live for sure. Uh, I don't know if you want to go to a break, maybe. You know what? Uh, let's let's do that real quick. And gotcha. uh, we'll, we'll go to your break early, and then we'll have a short break after afterwards. So we'll be back. We'll get William Wall back on the line on the Donald Jeffrey Show. Stay tuned. In a time of fake news, fake politicians, and fake fiat currency... It's getting harder to find the genuine article. That's why when it comes to precious metals, I call the team I can trust. This is David Knight for my friends at Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Proudly veteran-owned and operated, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange is your home for gold and silver coins, bullion, jewelry, and more. Prices and inventory are updated daily, so you get the most competitive possible pricing. And when it's time to sell your gold and silver items, they pay top dollar. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange also accepts and deals in Bitcoin. Call or text the owner, Tony Arterburn, today at 888-667-1836. That's 888-667-1836. Or just go to wisewolf.gold. From bullion to Bitcoin, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Gold, silver, the stock market, Wall Street Window.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. Wall Street Window.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. Wall Street Window.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. And welcome back to the Donald Jeffrey Show. That was exciting. We had a commercial break to keep you on your toes. Uh, we are back. We lost William briefly. It's the magic of live radio. So William Law is back with us. Uh, so I am, uh, before we were rudely interrupted, uh, maybe, maybe you can uh, come right back to where you were at and uh, start okay. up. Well, that was a lovely little unintentional break. Um <laughs> At, at this point, I knew I was going to have to have something special because I knew through the stack of papers that I had that, that the FBI agents always referred everybody back to the FBI. They would not comment on it. So I knew I was going to have to have something to get it to them. So I used the, the partial manuscript that I had uh, to, to get my foot in the door. And um, this was back in the days when you could just still call people up and and you could get their their number out of the phone book. And so uh, there were a couple of sentences where Custer had said uh, when I interviewed him that uh, he had uh, Cyberdon and O'Neill were uh, at, at his hip, attached to his hip, that he couldn't go anywhere without them. And so I decided to use that as a catalyst to uh, get in and ask Jim Cyber questions. So when I called, uh, I told him who I was. I was a researcher, and I was working on this book, and could he please give me a few minutes? And I read him these lines. 
And he said, well, no, that wasn't us. Um, and I used that to just start asking, you know, questions. And I, I did, uh, I did uh, ask him immediate, almost immediately because I, I didn't know how much time I was going to get with this guy. So I, I asked him about the, uh, about the FD302 report. And um, he said, well, about the surgery of the head area. And he said, well, I, I wish we would have phrased that better because it's caused some confusion in, in books. And uh, so I just kept uh, kind of prodding him a little bit. And I, I really felt that I had really connected with him after just, you know, asking some softball stuff. And, um, he, you know, he, he answered my questions. He said, uh, you know, trying to get him to talk, he said, you know, look, I don't have any stars in my eyes. I dropped some of the first bombs over Europe, and I don't need to be quoted in books. And that's kind of where he left it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I did I, I did try to get him, as I always do, I try to get them to meet with me in person because I don't want to do just a phone interview. I want to sit in the room with the person so that I can be close to them, watch their eyes, watch their body language, how they hold themselves. Um, and I want them to get comfortable with me, and I want to be comfortable with them, and I want to be able to have a conversation. So I, I asked him, you know, if I could, uh, if I could uh, do an interview with him, and he said no. Um, and so I said, well, could I call you again sometime? And he says, well, and now I was really disappointed, and I think he could tell that I was really disappointed. He says, I don't want to sit for an interview, but I'll tell you what I'll do. If you call me again at some point and you have a list of questions, I'll answer them. I'll do my best to answer them. So I was still in the game, and I was pretty happy about that. And I asked him for a number for uh, Frank O'Neill. And he did have it in his Rolodex, and he gave it to me. So I called, I called Frank O'Neill. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he said uh, he was, hello, and he was real short, real clipped, and uh, told him who I was, same thing I did with Jim Seibert, and said I was working on this manuscript, and could I ask some questions? I, I read him the lines from from uh, the X-ray tech, uh, Custer, and he said, no, that wasn't us. Uh, that was, That's not true. That man is sick. That wasn't us. And uh, so I started, you know, prodding him a little bit. And I, could you, Would you give me an interview for this book I'm working on? And he said, well, as, as to an interview, um, I'll have to think about it. Uh, but, but the tone was much more than I can give you. It was like, well, let's do an interview. I'll have to think about it. But he said, I'm going to call Jim Seibert right now. I'm going to call him first, and I'm going to talk to him about this. And, <laughs> and so uh, that was pretty much it. Now, I, I think I waited two or three weeks, and I called Seibert back. Now, keep in mind that he'd even offered me a picture of himself for the book, okay, Jim Seibert. I felt I'd really connected with Jim. I thought mm-hmm. I'd really gotten to him. I thought... You know, I've, I've really connected with this guy, and he's going to open up. And I called him back uh, a few weeks later, and he, I, I introduced myself again, and I, I said, uh, he said, uh, yeah, hostile, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I said, well, remember, Mr. Seibert, you said if I called back and I had a list of questions, you would, uh, you would answer them for me. And he said, listen, he said, Everything that Jim and I, or everything that Frank and I did, 
is in the FD302 report. And he said, I know you're interested in this, but you'll just have to wait till these things are released, and then you'll know. And I was really taken aback yeah. by this whole thing. And so I, I did try to keep pounding on him about the, the pictures, and, and uh, I asked him about the back of the head wound, and he said, well, I don't remember anything as clean, anything's cleaned up like that, the back of the head being washed and stuff. He said, perhaps that was taken after uh, the morticians had done their work. Uh, and then I blurted out something like, well, no, sir, as far as we know, all the pictures were taken at one time, and uh, that really uh, closed the door on me. <laughs> so, um, we basically had to say goodbye at that point, and um, then I called O'Neill, and I knew what I was going to get. Yeah. And he answered the phone, and I told him who I was, went through the whole scenario, and he said, well, I've decided not to grant the interview. And... Uh, and uh, so I, I kept pushing. I said, can I just ask one question? Air, you know, no. So I, I went ahead and I said, did the president's body in the pictures look like what you remembered? He said, some of them did, some of them didn't. <clears throat> and then I, I pushed it again and I said, did the president's body look like what you remember? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd asked my question. He was very hostile, <laughs> and I was I was kind of in shock. It was like I felt that I'd really gotten to these agents, and then and yeah. then totally shut me down. And so that was it. I I hung up, and I yeah. didn't get to talk to them again for three years. And at the end of three years, where I thought I had the book completed, I thought I've got to call these guys again, and I've got to see if I can get them to talk to me, just so that I can tell the reader that um, I gave it my best shot, and that's what I did, and the circumstances were totally different, and the world opened up. <laughs> and and if you've, if you, you've read that part of the book, yeah, sure. you'll, you'll know what I mean. Well, well, well so, what, do you, what, what, do you, what do you attribute that to? What do you think happened in the three years where they suddenly became more accommodating? Um, you know, I wish I could tell you I had the answer, but I don't. I, I think in the case of Seibert, I think he had just decided, you know what, I'm in my 80s. Um, I think that Jim, uh, as I got to know him better, um, I called him Cy. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that I hit him at the right time, and mm -hmm. I think that he had been carrying this anger around because he felt that he had been used. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't find out this stuff till later, but I think that he felt that it was time. Now, now I'll tell you what happened when I when I called him up again. Um, I had called O'Neill first. I think I called O'Neill first. It was like three years later, and and he sounded a little glad to hear from me. <laughs> now this is Frank O'Neill, the guy that was brusque and short and clipped. He sounded a little glad to hear from me. He told me about him being in the. I said. Do I have the right Frank O'Neill? He says, yeah, that's me. So then he starts telling me about how he was in the paratroopers and the war and, and all this stuff. And then we drifted into the Kennedy assassination. And um, he at the end of it, we ended on good terms. And he, he's like, don't you think that the Kennedys, if they thought there was a conspiracy, would spend every dime they had to find oh, out? Right. 
Someone would have so talked. Then, <laughs> right. Yeah. So then yeah. I, I decided to, every few weeks, two weeks, a week, go and find a reason to call him and get him used to me. It was like, you know, it's like the old adage of, you know, you take the frog and you put him into the cold water and then you gradually heat the water until right. you know, the frog right. doesn't know that he's being cooked, right? So yep. Yep. that's kind of how I did it. Now, I not only did it for that, but, but I wanted to get to know this guy. I really had to know who he was. And so that's why I kept at it. And I just, the whole thing was I had read in, I think it was the Records of View papers that had been released at that point, that, that he had written this book. And he'd written a chapter on Kennedy. And I thought, well, maybe I can get him to talk to me about that. That's why I was so hot about it. So through a series of, of conversations over a period of, I don't know, I don't know how long it took me, but it took me a while. Um, at one point, he actually sends me the chapter that he'd written on Kennedy. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And I'm sitting here, and I read it about three times through, and then I catch it. And it said something like, there had been some cutting of hair or some slight removal of tissue from the head. Now, surely a trained doctor can tell cutting of tissue or cutting of hair and slight removal of tissue. Now, these guys took down notes from what they heard from the doctors. As O'Neill told me, I'm not a medical man. I just took notes on what the doctors said. Now, that wasn't in his federal document 302 report. That was in his chapter of his book that he had written, or, or the chapter on Kennedy that he had written and given to the records of U board. And so um, I, I got to question him about that. And he talked about how the the body, as I recall his uh, description, the 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 mouth was in a grimace. I believe he said the eyes were open and the fists were clenched. So we had a discussion yeah. about that, and and um, we we went through the whole gamut. And and after a period of weeks where I'd been calling him, um, at one point I sent him some documents that he wanted. And that just kind of – see, nobody ever wanted to give these guys anything. They would yeah. always ask, you know, would you do this for me? Would you tell me this? Would you? And mm -hmm. I thought, nobody's ever given these guys anything. Mm -hmm. So I came up with a thing where if he wanted a document, I, I gave him a document, you know? Yeah. So this opened it up, and I was just able to sit and ask questions. And he might not answer it, and he might shuffle it around, and he might, you know – he might go around it. Uh, and he did talk in circular reasoning quite a bit. <laughs> but but I did basically, after I got what I wanted from, from Frank O'Neill, and after I'd done that, I didn't want to call Cybert until I'd gotten everything out of O'Neill I could. So then, after I did that, I called, uh, I called Jim Cybert. And I went through the same thing. And he basically, these guys hadn't remembered me. I told them my name, told them who I was, told them what I was doing. Same thing. Only mm -hmm. now it's three years later, and neither one of them had remembered me. <laughs> and I wasn't going to remind them. And, and so I got, I, got, I got the kind and friendly cyber again 
Mm-hmm. And the reason I called I called O'Neill first was obviously what had happened two years prior was that after I got done talking to Jim Cyber, uh, and then I got a hold of Frank O'Neill, Frank O'Neill immediately got off the phone and for whatever his reason said, don't talk to this guy. Now, Frank O'Neill was obviously the dominant of the two. And so uh, he did not talk to me. I got shut down. So I talked to O'Neill first after I got everything I could out of O'Neill. I, I, you know, I asked him several times, can I please come to your home? No, he wouldn't do that. But he would answer questions over the phone. So um, after that, I called uh, Cybert and used the same story. I've got this manuscript. It's due to be published. I'd like you to be able to talk to me about And so I, I just kept him on the phone like that. And, and I did the same thing. I just asked questions. We talked about different books. It didn't take me long to discover that he knew about the literature on the Kennedy case and was actually quite interested in the Kennedy case. And so I decided that I would send him some of the newest books on the um, assassination. And at that point, it was um, uh, Assassination Science and uh, Murder in Dealey Plaza. And I I think I sent him uh, Noel Twyman's book, uh, Bloody Trees. Bloody Trees, right, right. This was a this was after a series of conversations, and and I found these books. Now, I came home because I was having I was raising kids at the time, and I had to work a full time job outside of doing this research. And I came home one night, and my wife says, "There's somebody that called for you, uh, Jim Seibert," and my teeth almost fell out. So <laughs> I called Jim yeah. Seibert back, and he he was just like. I I wasn't expecting anything like this. Good night. And he's I said, did you did you like anything? Have you have you read? He says, well, I've read one of them already. Now it's only been like a week since yeah. you know since I sent them. So he immediately sat down and started to read. So I knew after all these questions and I talked about the pictures and we went through the whole thing. It's all in the book in the Eye of History. Um. After that, I knew that I'd been working on these guys a long time, and I didn't want to be a pain in the neck, you know. And I knew I was having one of the you know last conversations I was probably going to have with this guy. So I said, you know, there are other people down in your area that uh, that I'm going to interview. And I said, I, I need to write a profile on you. And um, if I'm ever down in your area, would you mind if I uh, – if I interviewed you, would you would you sit for an interview with me? And I held my breath because here it is. It's now or it's never. And I hear him say no. And I and I thought, oh, I've blown it. It's done. And then I heard him say, no, I wouldn't mind. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you- what did what did I do? I immediately got a plane booked it, called him, said, I'm going to be down there in blah, blah, blah. And and so he allowed me to come down there, and that's how I got into Jim Seibert's house and spent, I think the first time I spent with him was like 12 hours. Wow. And, um, and found myself sitting in his office uh, talking to him, was able to get the first ever on-camera interview with him. Yeah. And it was one of the best times of my life. 
Well, it's, a, well, it's an incredible accomplishment. You get, and that's why those, those of you not familiar with In the Eye of History, uh, you can catch the, this interview, this historical interview. And that's that's the great thing about William. He uh, he chases these people. Then we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, some other stuff where he chased uh, uh, people that, you know, he, he goes to the locations and he's willing to do that. And uh, he takes the time and sometimes he gets snubbed, but uh, other times it works for him. And uh I think you're the best interviewer out there. You certainly helped me in hidden history. You know, you got uh, Henry Ripka's uh, son, you know, to talk, and that that was that was pretty great. So, I, I appreciate well, I, it. Well, I think I think you you know I think you're you're the best at that. And uh, I have a I, first of all before we because I want to I want to know how to pace this question. Are you are you going to stay the whole two hours or do you have to leave? Would you like me to stay the whole two hours? Oh, we'd love it. I just want to make sure that you. It's, I don't. I don't want to. You know, put you on the spot if you have. If you only plan for an hour, that's fine too. No, but of course, sure. let's, let's do it. Let's go. Okay, on. let's. Okay, well, great because you. The, we get questions here. Uh, uh, the FBI told Mister Law that he had to decide which side he should be on when researching. What's that in reference to? Um, I believe it was on. Um, I think I was talking to him about this Zapruder film, and he he said, "Well, you can't tell uh, what really was going on from this." This is this is Cybert or O'Neill. That was O'Neill. Okay. Um, and he said, I, "I I think it was. You have to understand this. It's been a while since I had these conversations, and I'm not in the habit of reading my own work over. Um, I believe that was in." Reference to, I try to not take, I think I told him I try not to take sides. I just try to report the information that I'm given. I try not to have a theory. And O'Neill said, well, you've got to, you've got to pick a side if you're going to take information from first or second or third or sixth hand information. You've got to, to make, pick a side. And of course I had, I had kind of picked a side. There was a conspiracy in the, in the death of John F. Kennedy or at least I thought so. But, you know, at one point O'Neill tells me uh, I'm getting ready to go to Europe. And this is not too long after uh, the uh, Twin Towers incident. Um, and he says, I'm, I'm going to go to Europe. And I said, well, surely you're not going to go. And he says, well, I have, he says, I still have friends within the Bureau, and, meaning the FBI. And he said, they tell me what's really going on not what they want you to think is going on ah. <laughs> that's <laughs> that nice tells you a little bit you know yeah. that tells you a little bit about mr o'neill right there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh that's cool somebody they, they want to know uh if you believe in zapruder film alteration it depends on what uh, time i get up in the morning <laughs> yeah, you're kind of. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about that too. I think something happened there, but I, I don't know. It's because it, it is kind of weird because the Zapruder film, after all, was was used as like that's what got me into it. Back into the left. I, I mean, I've <laughs> been talking to to a guy today that's rather well known, and he told me that he could prove that Zapruder was in on it, and they knew that <laughs> yeah, the fiction yeah. was. Yeah. And um, he's written about it. He's writing a book, and it's, I'm helping him with that. And it's it's going to be out probably in November, December. But I don't have permission to tell who he is. So, cool. Well, that's um, good. 
but who knows? I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, I've had filmmakers tell me, no, if you look at the grain pattern and you blow it up, it's original film. Um, but again, uh, Noel Twyman, who I got to know quite well, and who did the did the forward to the uh, second edition of uh, In the Eye of History. Oh, uh, he, he brought in he brought in a special effects guy, an Oscar award winning special effects guy, and had him look at the Superior film, and he believed that it was altered. So, right, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not an expert in any of that. I don't consider myself to be an expert in anything. I, oh, I consider myself to be smart enough to bring in people that do know that I can ask questions so that I can right. pass it on to you. Well, I think you're the I think you're the go-to guy definitely on the medical evidence at this point. Uh, you know, and I, I think I don't know, maybe if, maybe if Lifton's second book ever comes out, I don't know if you know Lifton, and you were obviously influenced by best evidence, but. What what is up with this uh, book about Oswald that he's been talking about? He was talking about on this on forums fifteen or twenty years ago, like it was Im- an imminent release, and it still hasn't been published. Do you do you know what's going on with that? Um, I I have tried to work with Mr. Lifton in the past. Um, I it didn't take me long to. <laughs> figure out that that um, I wasn't going to be able to you know and I don't I don't blame anybody for this um, but this is part of the problem um, we we get this information and in the god I'm going to get in trouble for this but you know in in the past 30 years that I've been doing this there are a lot of great people in mm-hmm. this thing that that do it for the same reason I try to do it, because I want to know the answers to things. Right. But sometimes if you're not careful, you can let your ego go bananas. And mm-hmm. then you don't share information. And you don't try to help the next person learn what they need to learn. And then it becomes, well, I found it first. Yes. I did it first. I wrote about it first. I'm better at it than you are. Why are you having attention paid to you? They should be paying attention to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's the way it's kind of always been, but it's really you know, obviously that way today. But that was that was the whole, you know, brouhaha, I think, uh, behind Oliver Stone's JFK, why Harold Weisberg, who I loved, but Harold Weisberg was very petty and very jealous and incredible curmudgeon, hated all the other critics, especially Mark Lane. But, you know, he, he leaks. I mean, uh, Harold Weisberg should have known better than anybody who, uh, you know, George Lardner Jr. was with the Washington Post, talking about Mockingbird Media, and he leaks an advanced copy of the JFK strip so that he can write a, uh, a, you know, a hit piece on Stone before the film even comes out. And I'm convinced that that Weisberg did it because he wanted to be the hero. He wanted to be the protagonist, and he was jealous that uh, he picked, that uh, Stone picked Jim Garrison. Well, look, everybody, everybody that's into this thing, and you can't, even if it's not about JFK, if you're just a writer and you discover something, um, you want credit for what you've done. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, Because when, you know, I'm mentioned in a lot of books, and sometimes I don't get, you know, credit 
Not as many as Vince Palarama, though. What what is he up to? 157. We have a. He's like the. I don't keep track. He's like Vince, and I love Vince. He's been on the show, but God, he's he's like a a, one of those telethons, like Jerry Lewis or something, where he's he's keeping a running tabulation. And there's another another book I mentioned in. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I I stayed at Vince's house uh, when I did the interview with uh, with Custer. I had I had uh, met him. And then uh, I was working with uh, the now defunct JFK Lancer uh, years and years ago. And when I got when I got the interview with Custer, I didn't know what to do with it. So I I called Deborah Conway, and she made arrangements, and I stayed at the house of uh, Vince Palomar and his lovely wife. And um, we uh, that's how I got the interview on film. And it and Vince has put it up on his. Web pages, my God, to look at myself. It's been, I don't know, I think 23, 24 years ago. And and to see myself age like that is pretty hard. Uh, and and it, the interview is, it's to my way of thinking, is is so bad. I mean, it's just, um, it it made me cringe to look at it. It did. <laughs> to talk about, talk about curmudgeon. Gerald Custer right. was, uh, oh my God, he's the definition of the word. Jeez. You know? Yeah. Um, and but you know, it is what it is, and it's there for posterity. And so, if anybody wants to look at it, they can. Well, these are important. They, these are great because you 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 talk to the people that are you know, that are uh, seminal figures here. They were they were involved. I mean, any anybody at the autopsy, it's it's important because you know they they well, were the ones. now because he died in two thousand. Yeah. And it was it was tragic. I got a call. David Lifton had called. Uh, I think Deborah Conway, and she said that it was just a rumor that Gerald had passed away. Um, I said, well, I don't know, but let me make some calls. And so I called uh, I called the Custer resident, talked to his wife, Marilyn. I said, Marilyn, there's been a rumor that, that Gerald has died. And she said, well, Bill, it's not a rumor. Gerald did die. He had a massive heart attack. Um and oh my God, can you imagine? I'm, uh, yeah. this wasn't, you know, this was like a week or something after he passed, and here I am asking yeah. this poor woman yeah. about this. And um, uh, apparently, he he had this heart attack, and they got him into the hospital, and he had just enough time to say goodbye to her. Uh. It, it was it was heartbreaking. Um, I, I have to say, I didn't. As far as personalities go, I didn't care a lot for Gerald Custer's personality, <laughs> but he he was he was like pulling teeth. It was like, you know, yeah. he promised me that he would tell me the whole story, yeah. and I go in there, and then he says, "Well, I'm working on a book with Tom Wilson, and I can only <laughs> go so far in this." And you know, and I was I was disappointed, but he's on the record for whatever good that is, and um, we have it now, and so. I'm grateful that I had that experience. How, how long? Um, how long after the interview did he die? After you interviewed him? I think I did the interview in uh, 1990, 1998. I think was he? Might have been at the end. Of, I think it was in the beginning of 1998. Um, and then, so he died like uh, a couple of years later. Oh, okay, okay. Well, and now how so, how how does because uh, you've talked to and you've concentrated a lot on the autopsy and. 
uh, I, I want to get. I think we've talked about him before. But what what are what are your views on the work of Doug Horn? Doug has been a guest on this show as well, and I was grateful my friend Bob Wilson helped uh, get him for this show because he's he's a ter- he's he's become a little better, and I really don't blame him because uh, Jim DiEugenio and uh, Kennedy's and King's website is influential. They kind of they gave his very, I think, his crucial work, you know, the, 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 the uh, ins- inside the AARB that uh, he put out, what, five, six volumes of that? Uh, huge, thick stuff, nothing but facts. And, uh, you know, his they just kind of, you know, blasted it. And I'm not sure why. It was because of film alteration or what. What you, uh, Have you worked with Doug? And because, you know, this is a lot of the stuff that he was involved in as well. Well, I have a great big interview in the second edition of In the Eye of History with Doug. Um, and I got that interview at the time when he wasn't giving interviews. Uh, but basically the only reason I got it, I think, was um, in, I think it's in volume three or volume four, there's like 18 pages taken right out of my book, In the Eye of History. And um, he didn't ask me for it, but um, which was fine because I just looked at it as publicity. Um, and Doug Horn was very important to this case. Yes, he was. Um, I have said it to him personally, and uh, I've said it publicly, and I'll say it again. Doug Horn has given a lot to this case. Uh, he could have stayed in Hawaii, I think, where he was stationed, and had a very nice job there. And because, like me, he read best evidence, uh, he decided to try to get on uh, the, the board there and filled out the application and did, had to, had to quit his job uh, to, to be able to be a part of this, uh, took a big cut in pay, um, and he's the reason that it was, you know, that we know so much more uh, on the medical evidence. This guy, if it wasn't for Doug Horn, my God, you know, what a mess it would have been. Um, I, yeah. will be, I will be eternally grateful to Doug Horn. Um, maybe he, he does at times ask you to take leaps that I, I don't know that I can take, but I'm not an analyst either. And that was his job. So, uh, I think he got a lot more right than wrong. If he got anything wrong, uh, I think he's a great guy. Uh, talked to him many times and uh, we all owe him uh, a debt of gratitude. Absolutely. I, I compare him to John Armstrong because both of them did a lot of research uh, and, and, and I don't know if it, I think Horn did on his own dime as well, but no, I know Armstrong did. And yeah, I don't agree with either one of them on everything, but uh, both of them, again, kind of, uh, especially Armstrong is a very volatile figure. You know, you got a lot of people that hate him, but uh, and, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't really know because he's, I mean, he, he did a lot of great research. Yeah, I don't buy his entire theory. I don't think Lee Oswald was the one that killed Tippett and those kind of, but, but, he did, you know, it's undeniable the stuff with Oswald schools and everything. So, I wish that these uh, figures would get more credit because a lot of the people that criticize them have never done anything. They're just posting on forums, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what exactly. What have you done other than you know, you're you're criticizing well, somebody what, else's work? That's what kills me so much. You you've got people out there that have read like you know two and a half books, and so now they've solved the case and they all have opinions. And um, have, who have you talked to? Have you actually sat with a witness across the table from him? Have you actually asked him questions? Have you looked into his eyes? Have you been able to, to 
see how he moves, how he talks, how he holds himself. Um, have you done any of that? Have you talked to anybody or have you just read something out of a book? So, you know, I, this is, this is part of the thing that, you know, I don't go to conferences anymore, really. Um, I had decided since before the pandemic not to, not to go to conferences anymore. I don't. Well, they, well, they used to, they, they, they used to ask you at least, I mean, you know, no, no, uh, except for our, uh, venerable producer, Chuck Ocelli, he, you know, he, we, I did a zoom thing with him for last year's, I think it was Lancer. I don't even know what the hell conference it was, but, uh, it was just because of Chuck, but I mean, I've never been asked. And, uh, so, you know, I just, I, screw that. I, my, my, my buddy, you know, our friend, John Barber, he is that way. I mean, in my way of thinking, William, the, this research community uh, should have they should have two people that should be like the deans of the and they should be the head of every one of their conferences and that's John Barber and Joseph uh, McBride who both are you know brilliant and they have the entertainment backgrounds they have you know name recognition they have all these connections and they've done great research too but uh, they both of them kind of get ignored and I, I really don't Joe McBride's been on the shows too I, I don't know why. What the hell is wrong with this alleged research committee? They don't do very much research. It goes back to I want to be somebody, and I want to be the first to solve this case. And everybody that's written a book has solved it, apparently. And you will never hear that from me. I do not claim that I've solved anything. What I do is try to talk to people that were there, let them give me their story, and you can be the judge, dear reader, whether you believe it or not. That's not my job. My job is to try to get the information down. And, and you know, I didn't really do it for the research community. I did it for me. I mean, if you get anything out of it, great. The fact that I did some books on this and you read them and you got something out of it, that's fantastic. But I really didn't do it for you. I did it for me because I had to know. I mean, the the the... I had to know one way or the other, was there a conspiracy? That was basically right. all I wanted. You know, it wasn't that I thought I was going to find the shooter on the grassy knoll. Um, I just had to know for myself whether or not there was an actual conspiracy to kill Kennedy. And I felt that the only way I could do that really is by talking to people that had had his, their hands on his body. And I thought, I'm going to start there. And I did. And I got more than I ever thought I would. I got yep. everything I ever dreamed of from. You absolutely did. So so of all these people you talked to, <clears throat> the autopsy and everything, because uh, Siebert and O'Neill, and I think if I get this right, uh, was it that O'Neill continued to believe or said he still believed that, that, that Oswald did it, but Siebert didn't right or any of the other people didn't all the other people you talked to custer jenkins and all these didn't uh, didn't they all doubt the warren report or am i getting that wrong no you're not getting it wrong um i'm sitting with gerald custer and the camera's rolling and he holds up a picture of the uh frontal view of john kennedy's skull the shattered skull he holds it up and he says these these men wanted him dead, and they did a good job of it. Now, it's one thing to read something like that in a book, okay? 
But when you're sitting next to a guy and he holds that up and he says, they wanted this man dead and they did a good job of it. Yeah. That, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. It's, it's like the first time I interviewed Jim Jenkins um, and I, I didn't know much about Jim Jenkins except from the work uh, in Best Evidence. And he'd made him sound, uh, Lifton had made him sound uh, more than a bit uh, reluctant to talk. So when I tracked him down and I talked to him about it, uh, in my notes I'd written that he felt that um, – the Warren Commission was just a show um, and some other stuff. I can't remember anything I'd written as far as the notes, but that Warren Commission was nothing but a show. Um, and I, I called him every once in a while. I, I didn't want to. I read a little bit about him in um, uh, Harrison Livingstone had written, with Jen, uh, written about Jenkins. But those were the only two that I knew that had had contact with him, and I didn't want to push him. And finally, uh, on one of my calls to him, I said, you know, um, if, <laughs> I don't know what, me, what made me say it like this, but I remember saying to him, you know, if you let me come down there, I can get a pretty good price on an airplane ticket. And he chuckled, <laughs> and he said, he said, you can, huh? And I said, yeah, I can. Uh, and I, I told him what I was doing. And uh, so he said yes to me. So, of course, I got the next available plane. Now, you got to understand, I, I've got small kids at home, and I have to tell my wife one more time, look, I'm going to go to New Orleans. Which <laughs> 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 uh, always got a rousing cheer, you know? Yeah, that's the place you want a wayward husband to go, that's for sure. <laughs> right, because I had to make arrangements at work, and I had to, uh, I had to uh, you know, get for the kids or tell the grandparents that they were going to babysit. So I whip off to New Orleans and, um, you know, I never sleep well before I'm going to do an interview. I, I got into New Orleans. It was hotter than hell. Um, I almost got on the wrong bus that was going to take me downtown. And I would have really been screwed at that point. Um, but I, I finally get to my destination at the hotel where he said he would meet me. Uh, the next day, I drafted a rough uh, tablet full of questions, a few pages. I wanted it to be as free-flowing as possible, but I wanted to hit the main point. Then I had this fantasy in my head of being able to sit with Jim Jenkins and maybe we'd go to the French Quarter, you know, have a nice lunch. I'd set the camera up and we'd just talk and, you know, that sort of thing. Well, <laughs> he, he gets there the next morning. And, you know, I'm, I've never met him, just talked to him on the phone. I set up a new camera that I bought. I wasn't very familiar with it. I'd lost part of my tripod. So um, I go down, and there he stands, and he's, like, well over six feet. And uh, shock of white hair and uh, beard the same color, dressed immaculately in a button-down white shirt, pair of black trousers and shine black shoes got his hands deep in his pockets and he's looking at a picture on the wall and I walk in and I said Jim and he turns to me and says well William you know in that nice southern drawl accent and uh, he could have been a history teacher you know um, 
because you know I was starving. I hadn't eaten the night before, you know, since yesterday. And and so he says, well, let's let's go around the corner to this restaurant and we'll have a coke and we'll talk about this. So we sit down and we have cokes and I'm sitting there and he's starting to tell me about it and he's like, you know, I was 20 or 21 years old when I'm in that autopsy. He says, you know, that's when I learned that that uh, my country was nothing better than a third world country. Yeah, powerful um, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Powerful stuff, and I didn't want to go any further because I I wanted it to get to be on film, and I said, well, Jim, let, let's not talk about it here. Let's go up to my room, and and so I can put it on film. Now I'd already told him that I wanted to, I was doing this thing, and I wanted to film him, and I you know so I assumed everything was good, but I could sense what was going to happen next. And he said, William, I would just as soon sit here and drink our cokes and not have you film me. Um. Now, I was like, the only way I can describe it <laughs> he's got a little kid, yeah. and he's got a lollipop, and he's just about to put the lollipop in his mouth, <laughs> and the guy reaches over and jerks it out of the, the hand of the little kid. Yeah. And he must have sensed this because my face must have fallen, because he looked, I said, Jim, I've come all the way here, and I, I couldn't say anymore. And he looks at me for, it must have been about 10 seconds, but he's looking right in my eyes. And it was like eternity. And so <laughs> he, said, he said very softly, he said, all right, William, I'll do it for you. So I jump up out of my chair and I said, great, let's go to the room. Yeah. <laughs> so, now, Deb, Deb, Deborah, Deborah Conway was with you, wasn't she? Or is that the, no, on this trip? Yeah. On this trip. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Okay. So I get him up to the room, and I opened the curtains, hoping I had enough light. Set him in a chair, had the camera set up. I turned it on. I had all I had was a you know rough bunch of notes, and so here here was I offered to take him. You know, let's go. We can go lunch now. And and he's like, no, well my wife's going to be back in forty five minutes. So so now now I've gone from having the whole day with him to having like. 45 minutes, maybe, <laughs> right? So yeah. the way I usually interview is to start out slow and it's conversational. We get comfortable with one another before I start asking harder and harder questions. And so now I don't have any time. So I'm like, I'm just going to ask the question, get the answer. Ask the question, get the answer, which I do. And he answers them all for me. As it turned out, he stayed two hours and five minutes. And I'm sitting across this table from him, and at one point he says, you know, at, at some point Hume says he, ma he made a statement, and he said, I think the statement was, okay, that damn thing fell out in my hand, talking about Kennedy's brain. The mm -hmm. damn thing wow. fell out in my hand. Wow. And I said, you know, and I'm trying to be like I'm a professional, but I'm, you know, I'm ready to bang my head on the table. It's like... <laughs> You know, like I hear this every yeah. every week, you know, and I'm like, I said, well, um, Jim, what did that mean to you? And he said, well, what I think that means is that the brain was removed and then replaced. Can you imagine mm, yeah. getting there across from this man yeah. that had a brain, I won't say Kennedy's brain, but he had a brain placed in his hands, which he placed in a what they used to call a brain bucket. It, it, it had uh, a piece of gauze that they made a sling out of, and then you would put the brain in this formalin solution, and it would soak, making the brain hard so that you could 
you could sausage it basically and put it on a light box and and look at it. So now he says this, and and you know the whole entire conversation was just incredible. If you look at the tape, it the, it comes off of the tape at you. It's like it was the tension in the room to me was very palpable. And I don't know whether he's going to let me be there. You know, maybe I'm going to tick him off and he's going to take off. He doesn't know me from Adam, you know? Right. right. But he stayed. He stayed for two hours and five minutes. I went after it was all done. We went back down to the lobby. His wife, Jackie, was there. I asked him, you know, uh, you know, Jim, I'd like to I'd like to invite you to a conference, you know, that's being held this year in Dallas. And uh, he says, no, no, thanks. I, I don't want to go to Dallas. And he held his hands up and he was out the door. He was gone. Um, and that was my first encounter. And um, I knew Jim for over 20 years before he called me one day and said, you know, my wife Jackie has been talking to me. And she says I ought to do something for history. I've decided to do a book on Kennedy. Would you help me with it? Wow. Now, what am I going to say to that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that book came about. And, uh, you know, I have just been one of the luckiest people on the face of the earth when it comes to this thing. Well, you've been very fortunate meeting the uh, <clears throat> meeting the witnesses. Gosh, that's just incredible. I mean, and But what I'm struck by is, is all the people that you met now, and, and I think we can add – uh, you know, some of the uh, deceased people to that, Paul O'Connor and people like that, that, that before, before I guess you got a chance to talk to them. But except for, was it Stringer that that, that very sadly changed his story to the ARB? I think it was Stringer. Uh, Stringer was, his, his testimony. Fortunately, yeah. we have David Lifting, who had called him, I think, in 1972, and yeah. got, you know, before he changed his story. And you know that David Lifton. Everybody comes down on David Lifton, and and maybe in some aspects, rightfully so. He's uh, he can be a brash personality, um, but at the same token, if if I've been uh, where you know I've I've interviewed these people. Lifton was there first, you know. Um, well, yeah, I, I want to say about Lifton too that. Uh, Felix, by the way, Felix, hi. Thanks for being in the chat room. Chris Graves is here. Felix Caraballo. These these are two big supporters of mine. It's wonderful to see them in the chat room. But Felix was mentioning first generation researchers, and he was, and Chuck, uh, Chuck, Chuck is quick to call you out. Let me tell you, you make a mistake, Chuck will correct you quickly. He's right there. Uh, he was talking about uh, Gary Shaw, Walt Brown, and Larry Hancock being first generation researchers, uh, and definitely, obviously, Walt Brown and Larry Hancock are not. Gary Shaw, yeah. I don't think quite fits that either. So I, I'm no. not sure that any, but David Lifton is probably, I think David Lifton pro- qualifies maybe as a first-generation researcher. He's very young when he started, but he's the closest one since Salandria died. I don't know that anybody, unless you consider David as being, because he was he was there very early on. I don't know if uh, what you would think of that, but that, if so, he's probably the only one living, I think. He, he's probably pretty close to it. Um, and you have to give you have to give credit where credit is due. The tenacity of this man to give so much of his life to this. Um, I became obsessed through him. 
he became obsessed by studying Mark Lane's work. Um, yeah. I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people that came before me. Sure. I mean, I, I take no, you know, I, I don't take this thing and go, well, I was, you know, I'm so great and wonderful. I mean, there were a lot of people that came before me. I just had, I had some luck in, in, um, in, in being at the right place at the right time and being so, so obsessed with this that I had no choice. It, it's like at this point I had no choice. There wouldn't have, I can't think of another subject that would take me away from my kids, yeah. from my home, my wife. Well, you saw, I, I, you saw that like in, in JFK, you know, the film JFK, Oliver Stone did such a wonderful job of portraying what it was like for a lot of us when, uh, you know, Jim Garrison is, you know, waking up in the middle of the night or he's pouring over the, the volumes of hearings and testimony in the middle of the night. And uh, that's the way it was for a lot of us. And certainly, uh, you know, nobody around me understood it for a real long time. <laughs> it's like, you know, what, is this nut going to talk about the single bullet theory again? And But it grabs you. And it's it's how do you I don't see how you can turn away from it, because especially you turn on the television and Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather, or, you know, they're just, you know, telling you, regurgitating these absurd lies. And it's like. I couldn't back down from that. I couldn't turn away from it. And the rest, the rest is history. As I, you know, go down these uh, deeper and deeper rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, I won't say my interest is cool, but I'm at this point. It's been thirty years, and um, I'm just. I think I've I've done. I'm still I've still got my hand in. I'm still working on some stuff, and when I'm done with that, I'll let you know. But I hate to talk about it when I'm in the middle of it. Well, yeah, and and, and you, you are, and that's why probably because I want to make sure we can fit everything in because you, you're not just a one-trick pony. I mean, you are, I think you are the the uh, the foremost expert we have on the medical evidence in the uh, the Kennedy assassination at this point. But uh, you've done a lot of great work on the RFK assassination, and we were talking about Scott Enyart, who was our guest last week, and who you've talked to quite a bit. And I have I'm him on tape. I've right. talked to Scott at length. Yeah, we. I did a. a um, produced a uh, documentary that's not out yet uh, with uh, Mark Sobel, noted film director, who did the commission uh, and uh, has been director of uh, some TV movies and some um, series on TV. Uh, and I met him by my interest in the JFK assassination. And uh, I was told, you know, although I was already in love with Bobby Kennedy, by the time I'd finished In the Eye of History, I'd really fallen in love with Bobby. Um, I too. remember Bobby, of course, better than I do John Me too. Me too. Yes. I, was, I was 10 by then. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I have a lot of memories of that and the sadness and watching the the, you oh. know, the film of the train going by. And, yeah, me too. And I, I, yeah, I still remember... I still remember because it was too late for us on the East Coast to, because uh, <clears throat> I I was you know already at age eleven or whatever I was a political junkie so I was following the primaries I mean I learned about politics really early on and it was only because Bobby Kennedy was running and yeah I mean I I was I, and I was so crushed when I, he lost in uh, Oregon I think it was the only primary the first Kennedy that ever lost a you know any kind of uh, election. And then he came back, obviously, in California. But I couldn't sit up and watch the return. So I remember as soon as I woke up that morning, I remember it clear as day yelling out to my dad, Dad, did Bobby Kennedy win the California primary? And he goes, yeah, but he was shot. And I said, oh, shit. And I remember going to school that day and 
a lot of the kids were like joking about it. And I, and I, I almost got in several fights cause I, I was just, you know, how could somebody joke about this? And, uh, a lot of Kennedy haters, even then. You know, well, not lived... everybody, especially in Oregon. I, it was mainly Republican territory back then. Oregon is not so much that way now, but back in the 60s, it, um, they weren't all that friendly to Bobby. It's the land, it land of uh, Chris Milligan now, isn't it? <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, in reference to our mutual publisher, I will say yes. <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny how things happen, you know. One thing, sort of. How much time do we have? No, we've got yeah. uh, al- almost forty-five minutes. So we've got forty-three minutes or so. <laughs> okay. Um, going. For, do you want to talk about JFK more? Or do you want me to switch? What do, What do you want to do? It's your. Do you want to? I mean, do you think you you would forty-three minutes be good for you to talk about RFK and then maybe some Marilyn Monroe? Just try to get people. Sure. You know, I, you, you've investigated a lot of stuff. Um, you know. I had investigated something for Mark Sobel uh, through the auspices of uh, Lancer uh, publications. And so I did some work for him. Uh, and sometime later, I heard Mark on an um, um, interview that I think it was uh, either talking about the commission or uh, the movie that he worked on, the series that he worked on, Dark Shadows. Uh, this was like 1991. And so... I came up with this idea. First, I wanted to do, I know it's Vince Palomar's territory, but I was really interested in doing something on the Secret Service. Right. So um, I thought, well, how the hell am I going to, you know, get to the Secret Service agents because these guys are tight-lipped, you know? Palomar had done a bunch of phone conversations uh, some years prior, but I needed to sit with them in a room. I wanted to meet with them. But I had no credentials to get to meet these guys. And so I thought, well, when I get into these situations, I think of how can I do this? You know, I, I really give it a lot of thought. And I thought, well, I'll contact Mark Sobel. He's a filmmaker. He's got the credentials. He's a movie maker. He's on the record. Let me see if I can contact him and see if, if uh, he would let me use his credentials somehow to get – I could say I'm working for Mark Sobel or something. And so I sent Mark a little email and said, look, I'm trying to, to uh, get in to see the Secret Service and, and I would, uh, some of these agents, and uh, I'd like, I have no credentials. Could you help me with this? Would you let me use your credentials to try to get in? And, and he wrote me back and said, well, let's do it for real. So then we <laughs> talked about it and we decided that we were going to do a film uh, on the Secret Service agents. So it didn't, I sent off a number of letters. It didn't take me long, you know, because Vince had been in this area a while and he was personal non grata with these people. And the last thing they wanted to do was talk to somebody like me. Um, although I did have some luck because I had talked to most of the guys that had done Seymour Hersh's book, uh, The Dark Side of Camelot. And I got I got into that because um, Gala Films in Canada uh, was trying to do a documentary. And based, somebody had told them that I had had the only interviews on film with Jim Seibert. That got back to them. They called me and said, could you uh, get us an interview with Jim Seibert? We'd like to do a theatrical film. And so they 
put me on their team, gave me a letter of introduction, and hired me to uh, talk to some Secret Service agents. So some years before that, I had done some of that, but I, you know, that was just for gala. I hadn't done it for myself. So um, Mark and I started trying to track down these uh, Secret Service agents. And at one point, Mark says, look, this is going to be a guerrilla film. We're not going to worry about permits. We're not going to worry about any of that stuff. We're going to go in there. I'm going to take my camera. He says, we had, we had found out there each year they have a meeting in a different place. And I think it was might have been Vegas at this point. So they were all going to gather in Vegas. And Mark says to me, he says, look, we're going to go down there. We're going to get into the building where they're holding this convention. I'll have my camera ready. You go in first. I'll be behind you. He says, you go in there and you start trying to talk to these guys. And if they pull their guns on you, I'll get it all on film. <laughs> well, that kind of cooled my, uh, yeah. not my enthusiasm for that so much, but I just got to the point where I don't think these guys are going to talk to us. So I thought, well, I think instead of doing that right now, I'm going to concentrate on doing something on Bobby Kennedy. So I asked Mark if he would, uh, like to come along with me while we, uh, I tried to get a hold of some people and film them. I was going to do what, like I did for my first book. So Mark went along with that. Now I'd gotten to know Larry Teeter. I'd met him a few times and, um, I said, you know, I wanted to meet Sirhan. That was my big thing. I wanted to do what, uh, Robert Blair Kaiser had done years and years before me, which was get into a cell with, Sirhan, so that I could assess for myself whether he was telling the truth. And the big thing is, did Sirhan remember shooting Kennedy or did he not? Was this guy pulling our chain or was he telling the truth? And so I wanted to be the guy that followed Kaiser, go in, this is like 40 years later, and see if I could get new information. So I told this to Larry Teeter, who was his attorney at the time, and I'd done a little bit of work. I'm having to skip around here because if I – you know, we'd have to be here five years if I had to tell right. you all the best exactly. things I exactly. go through. So, so I had done some work for Larry at, at some point. Um, and so we knew each other a bit. And I'd been to a lot of his uh, his talks. And so um, I said, you know, I'd really like to follow you around with a camera while you try to get a new trial for Sirhan. I'd like to make a documentary. And he said, damn, that's just what I want. So there you go. I had I had Peter and I had Mark and his abilities and his camera mm -hmm. equipment. Mm -hmm. So two months before I was to go to California to start filming this thing, I get this notification that Larry has died. Yeah, I was going to say, yep, yep. <laughs> and, and so I made some phone calls and he had died. Um, and he hadn't told me he was sick or anything. And so... Um, we're, we're Mark and I are ready to do this film, and now Larry's gone. So then he said he Mark decided to follow me around and make the film about me, uh, trying to find out get these witnesses to talk to me, and then we would film the witnesses. We had nothing, you know. So so that's what yeah. happened. I moved to California. He started following me around with the camera, and then as I managed to talk to more and more people that said yes they would be willing to be filmed and we could talk to them. Then it switched from me to actually getting serious and, and filming people. I got to, I tracked down Paul Schrade. 
we I got to be very close with Paul over the years. Uh, we uh, Lisa Urso, we we contacted her. Rosie uh, Greer, we got him. Uh, we got uh, just about everybody that was around Bobby Kennedy at the time wow. that he had been shot. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's how that all started, which sent me down a road uh, of talking to, flying to New York, talking to, uh, after Larry died, uh, then I, it, the, the lawyer became William Pepper. Um, yes, and then yes. I flew to New York at the co-counsel's request, who I met in Pittsburgh when Cyril Wecht had me out to show a rough cut of the documentary uh, at the conference there. And I, she happened to be there and listened to my presentation. And then the next day said, you know, Bill would like to talk to you, meaning Bill Pepper. So I flew out to New York. And I, once again, I had to tell my wife, well, honey, I got to go to New York. So I went to New York <laughs> and, and I met with William Pepper. And there was a whole thing where he, there, where we're having a wonderful time. It took me to, it took me to the club which is a big fancy uh, place there in New York where you can have lunch and dinner. And, and uh, I remember Bill looks at me and he says, you know, I think you have to have a tie to get in here. <laughs> but he gives me a knowing look and a smile and he says, if you need a tie, I can get you a tie. <laughs> so we get in there, we get in, we sit down, and it's a big fancy, you know, panel place, uh, usually places where they don't let people like me in. And so I'm kind of looking around, you know, the whole yeah. stuff. And um, I have, I have, I had this thing at the time where um, I, I had to work in an office at the time, so my hair was very neatly trimmed, and my beard was very neatly trimmed, and it was before it all turned gray. And I had a suit on and an overcoat and a briefcase. I, you know, I looked the part. So um, I did that whole thing and we had a wonderful time. And he was telling me wonderful stories about how he used to be Martin Luther King's lawyer. And the last time I saw Martin was right in this room over here. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're telling me all these things. And, you know, I'm not, I, I love hearing it. And my little girl was in school and they were just studying about Martin Luther King and so I, you know, I talked to them about that, and I thought, well, Haley will really love this when I go home and tell her about it. But what I really want to talk about is Sirhan. So now I start, after all that stuff, and we have our lunch, and it's fun, and we're talking about politics and Barack Obama. It was on Inauguration Day for Barack Obama, and I'm sitting there with Larry Dusick, the co-counsel, and William Pepper. And, I, and now I'm, we're all relaxed, and we've had fun, and we're talking and I said, uh, I'd like to talk about Sirhan. And they went from laughing and having a good time, both of them, to their faces absolutely going to stone. Really? And I leaned back in my chair and I smiled and I said, I'm talking to lawyers now, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they nodded and said, yes, you are. And so I gave them my spiel about what I wanted to do. And um, they, after that, we, I think we went back to his office and they said, look, here's what we'll do. If, if we get a new trial for Sirhan and you find out all this stuff, he said, they're going to be able to call you as a witness. And I don't want them to be able to call you as a witness. Um, so we'll make you part of our team. 
you'll be our West Coast investigator. And so I came away from that being all happy. And Bill was going to do this and give me interviews and, and that kind of thing. And um, absolutely none of that happened. Um, I, however, on the other hand, gave them everything I had. <laughs> <laughs> and so they got everything from me. I basically got nothing from them. I had to sign confidentiality agreements saying that I would not talk about the case. I wouldn't write about it or do anything about it till it was all over. You know, the, the standard stuff. But it was the only way that I could try to get myself into the case. So I did that. And so anything that I got, you know, I, I basically handed over. And he, at one point, this is months into it, I said, you know, Bill, talking to him over the phone, I said, I've been working on this thing for months. I said, I've given you uh, everything I have. You've basically given me nothing. I said, I'm a writer, and writers need something to write about. And he said, and at one point he wanted Bill Wiesel, who was one of the first people shot in the pantry, and he wanted him. And I said, well, if you want Bill Wiesel, I'll get you Bill Wiesel. But I hadn't managed to get him. And he said, well, you haven't given me Bill Wiesel, have you? And you promised <laughs> me you were going to give me Bill Wiesel. And I wow. said, look, if you want Bill Wiesel, I'll give you Bill Wiesel, but you've got to <laughs> give me something as well. Well, I did yeah. manage to get talk to Bill Wiesel, mm-hmm. and uh, then I set up a thing where where Pepper could talk to Bill Wiesel, and Bill Wiesel acquiesced and went to Sir Han's parole hearing that was coming up, and he got him to say to the board, I don't care if Sir Han is paroled or not. Now, that had never happened before. Mm-hmm. You know, and basically it happened because <laughs> I asked Wiesel <laughs> to talk to Pepper, and yeah. And, and guess what happened to William? Uh, William was left out of the parole hearing um, <laughs> and left in the wings and didn't get a thing out of it. Um, uh. So basically, I just I started doing other things. And, and um, then I got to talking to Lori Dusick, uh, which yes. leads into a whole nother uh, tale. Lori, I've interviewed Lori a couple times, yeah, yeah. If Thanks I, to you. I, I think ever, you helped set it up, you and Bob Wilson, yeah. Yeah. If I ever get this book that I've been trying to work on done, yeah. you will know the whole story. And well, it's that, quite a story, let me tell well, you. That, and that's what it – because it sounds like you've done a lot of research. But so is the docu – because I'm not sure if it was supposed to be just a documentary or a documentary in conjunction with the book. But where – how much footage do you have? Can you still make a documentary? And how oh, much – uh, so, We have – you mean as far as film footage itself? Well, both, like film footage and how much do you have as far as like, for a book? Either. Basically, basically done, although Mark keeps tinkering with it and working on it. And we're still, you know, we, we have to do a little bit more because we've taken so long to get the documentary out. But it is coming. Um, oh, cool. I believe at this point we're calling it 1968. Um, I will Great. tell you that that before one of the people that I really wanted to talk to was Juan Romero, the bus boy that yes, held yes. Kennedy's head in his hands uh, after the shooting. Um, I'd been on the search for him for a good long time. Finally was able to connect with him through the graces of Paul Schrade. Um, and it worked out to where I flew to San Jose, where he, uh, where he was. I was in California with Mark. Uh, talking to Lori Dusick, uh, we managed to get her to come down, and I flew to California, and we got 
her to go uh, before the camera talking about the case. And then I, uh, Mark, something happened with Mark and he couldn't, he couldn't make it, but then I'd already set up this appointment with Juan to uh, go to where he lived and film him. So I hadn't filmed in a long time, but I wound up flying to San Jose, setting up the equipment, setting in a room with, with Juan Romero. Um, and, you know, he's one of those people that, you know, you hope that a person can be what you have of them in your head, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's one of the only times that I've ever met somebody that they exceeded what I thought they were going to be. Mm. He was yeah. he was warm and kind. And I tell you, I, I, I choke up when I start to talk about him mm-hmm. because the, the, the assassination of Robert Kennedy had affected him to such a point True. that it took over his whole life and basically colored his whole life. Mm-hmm. Let me let me give you a little bit of an exclusive here. It's just a little a little piece. And let me see if if you can hear this. This is Juan Romero mm-hmm. talking about how he became to be in very the cool. country. Would you like to hear that? Uh, very cool. I would love that. Hang on just a second. William, can you bring that closer to your phone? Because it's uh, not really uh, uh, easily understood. Well, it's, can you understand it now? No, it's it's very, very shoddy. How about now? That's a bit better. Thank you. 
Exclusive on the Donald Jeffrey Show, courtesy of, of William Law. Really, that, so that's that's part of your part of the wealth of information William has in the the documentary, right? That hopefully will be released at some point. I, I, you know, that maybe try Netflix or something like that. Netflix has buys some of that stuff. I, well, I don't think Mark wanted the Mark wanted the book to coincide with the release of the film, and um, I just, you know, I've taken on other projects. Um, I started this. It's been <laughs> well. It started well before uh, in, uh, the inauguration day of Barack Obama. So that will tell you how long it's been. It's been fifteen, sixteen years, off and on, that I've been working on this book. I could not bring to fruition getting inside the jail cell, and then I ran into problems with, of uh, course, Pepper. He didn't give me what I wanted. I got very close to uh, Sirhan Sirhan's brother, and we've had. Many, many conversations yeah. over a number of years. Um, I, I, I did uh, get to the point where Sirhan would ask about me when I would call, uh, mm-hmm. when I would call Munir, and he would say, "Well, uh, talk to Sirhan," and he, he said, "How is William Law doing?" And that made me feel kind of weird, you know. Well, well, well but he, but um, you never, you never got to meet William, uh, Sirhan. Never got to meet Sirhan, uh, but he although he was brother, aware, yeah. he was aware of. Yeah, what he knows, I was doing. He knows and I who you are. At some point. What's that? No, so he knows who you are. That's pretty amazing. Well, it would be even more amazing had I accomplished what I'd set out to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think However, you accomplished what? Yeah. Throughout throughout the years, um, I think I have the answer that I wanted. And when when the book comes out, then you'll know what I think. No, well, we can't wait for that. And uh, were you able to uh, get a hold of uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr., anybody, the elusive RFK Jr., who I feel like I'm three degrees of separation from. I've had Del Bigtree on my show, Sherry Tenpin, but I, I can't get RFK Jr. I have um, I have tried various ways to get a hold of uh, RFK Jr. I've not really pushed it. Uh, you know, before he went in, before the big thing about the visit, that he paid yeah. Sirhan in prison. I knew yeah. about it 
basically uh, long before anybody else knew about it. And I had to keep it under my app. Um, yeah. You know, things like that. And uh, I was trying to write about it as it was happening. You know, I wanted to write about it as it was fresh and as it was happening. And um, I'm just, I'm going to, I mean, there are all kinds of things about, like Lynn Mangan, who is Sirhan Sirhan's researcher. I uh, got, uh, I gave her a little gift. I had a book that she wanted. I sent it to her. She had, she'd been to the uh, Sacramento archives with with all the materials. She had uh, Sirhan's power of attorney. And because I gave her that book, she said, I've decided to go in one more time into the archives and I'm taking you with me. So I got to go into the archives, and uh, so did Mark Sobel with a film camera, and they brought out the original notebooks, Sirhan's original notebooks, uh, the gun, the uh, clothing of the victims. They even have uh, the bullets that struck uh, victims, and they have... Uh, little pieces of, um, of skull from Bobby. This Kennedy. is this is the LAPD archives. No, this is in Sacramento, okay. in the National Archives there for Sacramento. Oh, National Archives there, okay. And and they have all this stuff there, and I could not believe um, that I was actually got so far as to to look at the materials, um, the clothing, the 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 bullets, the gun. Uh, I mean, at one point they brought in, they had in a, a little vial uh, actually containing pieces of Bobby's uh, skull. And it might have just been me, but the air felt heavy. I, I At one point I got so weak in the knees that uh, I had to sit down. Mm-hmm. And Mark, who was filming all this, said, are you okay? And I said, no, not really. And it was because it felt heavy. I, I don't want to seem mystical about this, but I felt like I really shouldn't be in here. You know, it was almost like you were handling sacred things, that you were looking at things like that. It, it was almost overwhelming to me. And um, I, later I talked to Mark and he said, no, no, William, I felt it too. I felt it too. I felt the heaviness. Um, it it was really quite an experience. We got to take all kinds of pictures that will be in the book. Uh, We have some exclusives that have not been seen before. I got to go over Sirhan's original notebooks. I actually, at one point, took a magnifying glass and went over every word that he'd written. I wanted to check the the pressure uh, that he'd made with the pens or the pencils. That was was really something. Uh, We have all that on well, I, I, it sounds like, you know, it's just you've done so much wonderful research. I hope you can get both the book and the film out there because, uh, you know, you, you deserve to have a, a, a big success with it. Hopefully you can sell it to somebody because uh, that's and I'm, you know, I'm wondering uh, with Sirhan being recommended for uh, to be released from pro. What, whatever happened? I'm, I'm assuming Newsom didn't let. I mean, did Newsom refuse to release? I'm, I'm assuming that must. Well, must you know? He had, he, I'm the guy, I'm the person that called his attorney. I I tried to get people to take the case, and they they wanted a lot of money, and and it came down to um, 
okay, we're going to have to pay somebody to take this case. Now, keep in mind, this was not, I'm going to say this, it was not my love of Sirhan that made me do this. Right. It was my wanting to do a book and get it on the record. That's And I've told, I told Lynn this, and I, I probably told Muni this, it wasn't because I love Sirhan. It was because I love history, and I loved Bobby Kennedy, and I wanted to get a straight record, at least as straight as I could. And and I like to say, get the best version of the truth that I can get. So I was willing to put up the money to um, to get him an attorney at this point. And um, I took a, I took a job uh, writing a book uh, about drug running in the CIA uh, <laughs> that I needed that I needed a certain amount of money. Yeah. up front that the publisher was willing to pay me so that I could pay the attorney. But when I told this to Munir, he didn't want to do it um, and decided to back off and didn't talk to me for a while. And then later I found out his reasoning was if you had to pay somebody, they might not do the best job. But if you could get them to take the case uh, for free, right. then they would put their heart into it because there was nothing to be made, which sure. I suppose there is a case to be made there. Right. Um, so, he gave me uh, – I tried everybody and their brother. Nobody wanted to take the case. Uh, finally, uh, I think Munir came up with three names, and he said, try these. And I finally got one of them to listen to me. And even she told me, uh, no, I, I don't think I'd be interested in that. But uh, I was reminded by Munir Sirhan that uh, he called her back after I could not talk her into it. And he got her to do it. I don't know what he said, but she decided to take the case. And she is uh, Angela Berry, and she's the one right, right, right. that got him this parole. Now, and the reason that, that Sirhan really didn't get any further than he's gotten, in my opinion, is because most of these lawyers, I will say all of these lawyers, from the first one to the last one that took his case, didn't, didn't, Give one hoot in hell about Sirhan Sirhan and whether he was guilty or innocent. They cared about the fact that they were going to get to, process, to try this case, and they were going to have this famous client and through this killing of Robert Kennedy, and they were going to get fame and glory, and they were going to get money. And most of the time, that's what they did. I, I do believe that Angela Berry took the case for the right reasons, and she's in my conversations with her, she's very bright. She's very smart. She's You can just tell by talking to her that she knows her business. So, well, she she helped accomplish something hadn't been accomplished before, but where where does it stand? Did Newsom already reject it? I mean, because it's been over here, yeah, hasn't it? He did reject it, but, but um, he went before, I, I believe, a two-person panel. They said yes. The completion was to go before another, the rest of the of a panel. And if they said yes, then it would be... Uh, okay, I think that happened. I don't, don't quote me on it. I could be wrong. Then it went before Newsom, and Newsom vetoed it. But they, I they figured he me, wouldn't. Yeah, I figured he would. But yeah. Well, he said Bobby Kennedy was a hero to him. Now, right. <laughs> whether Bobby Kennedy was a hero or not, the real thing here is: does he deserve it? Does 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 he deserve parole? Do we deserve the truth in this thing? Do right. we deserve, and does Bobby Kennedy deserve the truth of his murder? 
Absolutely. And that's what I've been struggling to try to get to all these years. I don't give one hoot in hell about fame or money or prestige. I want to know whether or not Sirhan Sirhan blew a hole through history or was he a patsy and used. That, that's been my whole goal through this whole thing. Absolutely. And so far, I've not been able to do it the way I want, but I, I do feel that I have come to conclusions. Yeah, well, you, you, and you've done a lot of work, so hopefully you can get it out there for everybody to see. We, we're running out of time rapidly. We only have like 11 minutes left. So I want to hit a little bit on Meryl Monroe. How'd you get involved in that? And, and maybe you just give us some brief uh, little snippets of what you've, uh, what you've done in that work. I got, surprisingly enough, I wanted to, to deal with the Maryland thing for years and years and years. Never thought I would have the opportunity. Um, I met a man uh, from the UK named Matthew Smith, who had at this point written two or three books, I guess two books at that point about Marilyn Monroe, was also a Kennedy researcher, uh, just obsessed with Marilyn. He wanted to, he did not believe that she committed suicide. He believed that she was murdered. He felt that he wanted to take the stigma of suicide away from her name. And we got to be such good friends that he asked me to collaborate uh, on his last book on Marilyn, and I was more than happy to do that. Um, you know, of course, you know that, that um, Marilyn, there's reports that an ambulance and a police car was seen at Marilyn's house around 1030. That's by neighbors mm-hmm. that happened to live close. Mm-hmm. Uh, re- reportedly, uh, Eunice Murray, the housekeeper, which wasn't basically just a housekeeper. She was put there by Maryland psychiatrist Ralph Greenson, basically, to keep an eye on her, mm-hmm. um, which which she did. Now, her story is about she just had a feeling uh, about three in the morning that she had to, she was going by a do- Maryland's doorway and said she could see the light underneath the doorway uh, and Marilyn would have been asleep at this point. Now, the trouble with this is that Marilyn had just bought this house, hadn't been there very long, had had the carpets replaced with a thick white shag carpeting that was so thick you couldn't see under the door if you wanted to. Right. <laughs> so, so that's one thing. Um, she called, instead of calling an ambulance or anybody else, she called Ralph Greenson, who right. showed up about 3.30, then he later called uh, uh, Hyman Engelberg, who was her doctor, who had been weaning her off pills by this time. And um, he showed up sometime after 3.30. I think that the first policeman called was Officer Clements. He showed up uh, to the house sometime after that. And so they'd been alone with Marilyn for like three hours, uh, perhaps more at that point before all these people. And, and Cle- Clemens is the main, really the main witness to what went on there. I, I, most of the doubts, I think, came from what he observed when he got on the scene, right? Right. He said that, he said that, um, that the housekeeper seemed to be a woman, his words, in fear. And the question comes up, fear of what? If it was just a, you know, if it's a suicide, yeah, you're going to be scared. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be a little frightened, maybe. You're going to be sad. You're going to be stressed. But to fear, I mean, outright fear. So you have that. And then um, he said that a little after five, 
he could hear the washer running. They were washing clothes or sheets or something. They were washing some kind of materials in the washer. He could hear that. Um, and he saw the body. He saw uh, a number of prescriptions on her bedside table. They still had some pills in them. They weren't all gone. Later when he saw pictures, the, the bottles that were there were empty. Um, there was no there was no glass for water. Right, right, um, right. So, so there's that kind of thing. I actually tracked down. I found a little item when I was doing research, and I actually tracked down Eunice Murray's great nephew. I think it was a great nephew. Ah, wow. About about that, and he said, you know, she gave me her book. She later wrote a book about it. Um, I don't remember the author's name, but she he said she gave me the book to read. Um, she was so, he, his words, she was so scared about it that she wouldn't talk to us about it. Um, she gave me the book. I don't think I ever finished reading it, but she didn't talk a whole lot about about that to us because she was scared. Now, I think it's in 1985 to Anthony Summers. They have a camera on her. She's doing, she's being part of this documentary and she doesn't know the camera's on. Yeah. She says, why do I have to keep covering up this thing. Um, and then, again, he asked her, well, why didn't you tell the truth uh, in in 62? And she said, well, I just told what I thought was good to tell. <laughs> so you, you have that, you know, right from the beginning. And uh, I think it might have been Engelberg at some point was questioned, and this is on audio, and they say, you know, asks him a question, and he says, ask Bobby Kennedy. Now, of course, yeah, yeah. This brings, this brings speculation uh, that that you know Bobby Kennedy killed Marilyn Monroe. I've spent years studying Bobby Kennedy, and I don't believe for a moment that Bobby Kennedy no that everything but... in this man's character, uh, especially uh, after his brother died. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was a man that was black and white, heaven and hell, right. and he believed very much. He was a Catholic, you know, yeah. he believed that, you know, he would have believed that had he participated in something like that, her murder, he would have gone to hell. Yeah. He was not going to participate in it. And there's never going to be anybody that's going to convince me unless they have some movie film that that um, that Bobby Kennedy had anything. To but do but that's that's why I think it's it, because of the real or imagined connections between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys, whatever, however real they were. The first thing when you mention her death, and I know when I've mentioned the first thing, oh yeah, the Kennedy's had so that they've been they they put planted that idea in the public mind. So if you scratch the surface there, that's what you're gonna find. But I, you know, and again, Bob Wilson is in the chat room. He's the one that uh, found me some evidence that uh, I, I didn't know. Veronica Hamill, you probably know this. Who was a now I'm forget. With, I'm very familiar with the story. As a matter of right. Fact, so why don't you tell us? Yeah, tell the story. I tracked down. The uh, right sometime after Marilyn had died, uh, the people that bought the house, uh, they bought the house and the furnishings and the whole thing, as I recall. Uh, and their little girl was about five years old. And she lived in that house, I think, from the time she was five years old until she was 17. And I was trying to get her to give me an interview for um, the book. And I'm very familiar with the 
uh, Veronica Hamill story where she was remodeling the home and found uh, recording equipment or bugging equipment. And I said, you know, it's been a rumor forever that Marilyn was uh, bugged from top to toe by uh, members of the mafia, Jimmy Hoffa, Frank Otash, or Fred yeah. Otash, who was, was the main guy if you wanted somebody bugged. Uh, you know, he knew the people to do it and knew how to do it himself. I said, I've got to ask you this question. And I said, did you overhear your parents or did you ever know yourself, whether or not in the time that you lived there, from the time you were 5 to 17, did you ever see or hear stories about bugging equipment or recording equipment being found in the house or in the attic? And she paused and she said, I do know the answer to that question, and I don't want to answer it. <laughs> yeah, so I guess she answered it. Well, that's just amazing, and that's why. And you, you have written about Marilyn Monroe as well. I still, and I'm sorry for being negligent. I know you sent me the uh, <clears throat> the file a while back. I'm going to look at it at some point, and uh, I, because uh, I think you ought to do something with that too. Because not, you know, you had you had Summer's book uh, that came out. Uh, you said maybe '80s. Six eighty something, I don't know, something like that. Got like yeah, goddess, uh, which is a good book, and but that's really the only critical study I know that's been done on it. Maybe and because everybody else kind of plays, they they just immediately go into the Kennedy thing, which I think is disinformation. Right. Well, I hope to I hope to have uh, something done with it. it. It was basically I was helping Matthew with it. It wasn't per se my book. I was, as he liked to put it, his eyes and ears. And before we could get the book published, um, Matthew sadly passed away. Um, he was he was in his uh, early 90s at that point. Uh, oh. He was, you know, either in his very late 80s or close to 90, 90 something. And and he, uh, at one point, he he had some health issues. And as you know, when you're that age, it just went from bad to worse. Right, right, and, right. Uh, he, and so I've been sitting on it. I don't know if I'll be able to do anything with it. I hope so. I think it's a good book. And Matthew wanted it published. Right. Do I have time to tell you the one story? I know well, we, we've got we've got about one to two minutes left. So I want you to be, I, I want you to be able to you know promote anything you want to promote too. Well, I'm real, I'm just I'm not here to really promote anything other than than you know what I've already said. You can get my books uh, at, in the Eye of History or Betrayal or at the cold shoulder of history. Um, you can order it through your bookstore, or you can um, get it directly from me. You can uh, order autographed copies of from Jim Jenkins and me. They can go through you and get the information if they'd like. And, cool. Did, uh, Chuck, does he have time for a story? How, 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 how short is the story? I was just going to tell you, I was going to meet a movie star. I flew out to California. Oh, yes, I know the story. Yeah. <laughs> To Natalie Trundy, who uh, at the time was the fiance of, um, uh, well, I can't remember his name now, I can see his face. Uh, he produced the Planet of the Apes movie. And he was the publicist for. And, uh, Arthur, you know, Arthur, uh, Arthur Jacobs. Arthur Jacobs, Arthur Jacobs. Yeah. And so he's at the Hollywood Bowl with Natalie Trundy. They're sitting there listening to a concert. Somebody comes and gets author and says, something and he says he turns them to uh 
His fiance says it's about Marilyn. He leaves and he disappears for three days. I, th- I think Chuck's Chuck's running the music. I don't, I don't think we can fit it all. This is a great story too. We'll have to get it the next time. I'm sorry. I, I, Ch- Chuck's giving me a subtle hint. Did you put it in your last book? I think you were going to put it in your last book. They can read it there. Yes, I did. I did. That's right. The story is in Unborrowed Fame, and it's credited to William Law. It's a fantastic story. And William, you're a fantastic researcher. Love everything you do. Get his books. Support him out there. William, thanks I so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, th- thanks for being on Donald Trump. We have to have you back. Thanks for listening Thank to Donald Trump. Bye-bye.